Hello and welcome to episode number 217 the Armin Show podcast. Subscribe iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to episodes. On this episode, we have a guest, author of The World in a Grain, Vin Spicer. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. This is wonderful. Now, first, I always like to go into the guest biography and then the content. Tell us a bit about how you got to be where you are currently as a journalist, award-winning, if you will, over time. Sure. Well, it's kind of a long story, but in a nutshell, um, I sort of fell into it by accident. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know what I went to college and came out of it with a degree in Middle Eastern studies. Didn't know what I was going to do with myself, but was very caught up in the whole Israeli-Palestinian issue. So I thought I would just take myself over there and solve that problem. Great. We right? did that. So as you can see, that succeeded beautifully and Good. no more solved. troubles there. Peace. Yeah. So I went over, um, I just took myself over to Jerusalem and started looking for whatever I could do. And the first thing that came my way was a job with a Palestinian news agency. Mm-hmm. And turned out uh, really the only things that I knew how to do was to gather up a lot of information and sort of boil it down into a compact package. Mm-hmm. And what I really wanted to do was get out, be in the mix, be where the action was, talk to all the movers and shakers. And it turns out that's what journalists do. So right. it was pretty much the only thing I was qualified to do. So here I am. So I spent about a year there. I was um, covered the first Intifada and then uh, went up to Eastern Europe. This was the early 90s, around the t- uh, shortly after the fall of communism. Mm-hmm. And the war in Yugoslavia had just, ex-Yugoslavia had just broken out. So I spent uh, a year or two up there mm-hmm. and um, sort of been on the journalism train ever since. Lived a lot of places, wound up here in L.A. about 15 years ago. This is wonderful. We are in Los Angeles. I want to point that out. And this is live, which is very nice as a feature. Now, you have connected with a lot of movers and shakers. You mentioned, just out of curiosity, who are some people you have run across over the years or seen from a distance or been around in some form? Like famous people? Could be famous people or influential people or people that were relevant in that local area, like as a social gatherer, anything like that. Huh. Uh, A lot. I mean, I'll tell you, I don't, you know, most of the stories that I do are not, uh, I don't usually like go after the big newsmakers. I'm Mm -hmm. not like, I've never been a daily journalist, never been the kind of guy who's like trying to get a soundbite from the the president or whatever. But, uh, you know, when I was in the Middle East, I, you know, I, I did uh, rub elbows with all the, the big guys at the time, Yasser Arafat, Shimon Perez, um, you know, a bunch of the sort of big cheeses in, in Israel and the Palestinian conflict. Um, I don't know. I have done a few uh, uh, celebrity interviews here and there that people have asked me to do. I did Vince Staples a little while ago, if you know who he is. I know the name. I don't know the person. Well, to be honest, I'd never heard of him either. Uh-huh. But he's a, turns out he's a huge rapper. He's a huge rapper? <laughs> yes. Uh, I think I've seen him. I think I've seen an interview. You've I probably heard his stuff. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, but, um, but really most of what I do is, is much more sort of ground level stuff. I'm a lot more interested in just sort of what's happening to ordinary folks, how big trends and events and, and changes or policies, how those affect ordinary people. I'm much more interested in that than the sort of what's going on with the sort of bold name, right. famous types. Right. 
Like recently, the the rapper just throwing this in here, Nipsey Hussle from South LA, he was ended, if you will. And then I went to the thing, the memorial for that, and it you see the local community. It's nice to connect with the actual people there, see how th what they took from it. It's nice to get there on the ground, as you describe, mm -hmm. as opposed to from a distance and like, oh look, it doesn't connect. Which is kind of cool. Also, when you did that interview with Vince, was it Vince interviews Vince? Yes, it was. It was. <laughs> I think that's the only reason I got the gig. Right. I just wanted to be able to say that. Vince, Vince we on need Vince. You. We need you on the scene. Now, there's nothing more ground floor than sand, frankly. It's on the ground. What a segue. And this book is completely about sand. I like, I like books that give me a perspective that I'll take for a long time. Like Jeffrey West's book Scale gives me a sense of cities that I'll always think of cities that way. This one, I now look differently at the freeways and everywhere. That's all compilations of sand that had to be drudged up from somewhere and put together. Very interesting. What caused you to write this book in the first place? So I heard about, I just sort of stumbled across it. I, I heard about... You know, I, I'm always looking for a good story. I'm a full-time freelancer. Mm -hmm. So I read a lot of, you know, international press and sort of off-the-beaten press path kind of publications. Mm -hmm. And I ran across a story about a murder in India, in this farming village in India. And the motive for the murder, the reason this guy was killed was over sand. And I just thought, what in the world? Why in the world would anybody right. kill somebody over sand? I mean, it seems like the least important thing on earth. Right. So I started looking into it and Wired Magazine wound up sending me over to India to, to kind of investigate this guy's murder and come to find out, first of all, lots of people have been murdered over sand in the last few years. And the reason is, as you said, is because it's, even though we hardly ever think about it, it's actually the most important solid substance in the world. It's what our cities are made out of. Every concrete building, every asphalt road, every piece of glass, every glass window, every silicon chip, they're all made out of sand. And there is so much demand for it in today's world that we're doing massive environmental damage to get at it. We're stripping riverbeds and beaches bare all over the world. And in some places, the black market has taken over. Organized crime has taken over the sand industry. And they do what, what criminal gangs do everywhere. They bribe off police and government officials to leave them alone. And if you really get in their way, they will kill you. Right. So I just thought this was all completely fascinating. I'd never, never given a second's thought to sand before. But I just thought it was really fascinating and really important. So that's, yeah. uh, that's how the book came about. My perspective changed after reading it too. Because before reading the book, I would have thought, sand, we have oodles of it and then if we need any we have all these rocks the earth is all that but then through reading the book you start to realize wait a minute there's different qualities of sand there's limited amounts of each kind of quality uh you still have to get it like the hoover dam example that you wrote about i didn't even know about the way that's the cool part the historical context of it the hoover dam being created how much effort that took and how much sand had to be moved around and then that allowed Las Vegas and Phoenix to work out because the hydroelectricity and then the water. And water, yeah. That is some interesting stuff. Without those, there's not that. It's exactly. like the same reason maybe a Dubai without certain things, there's no Dubai. Exactly. That's, that's a different way to think like about it. Like I say, without, that's why I say it's the most important solid substance in the world. Without sand, we could not have modern civilization. It's right. the thing that makes it all 
possible. It made the Hoover Dam possible. It made the cities of Phoenix and Las Vegas themselves possible. The highways that connect them, the buildings they're made out of, it's all made out of sand. This is something I never would have thought of beforehand. If I would have thought of what made Las Vegas possible, I would have thought, I don't know, maybe a few investors that decided we're going to put it there. But you can't just throw money at things. There has to be the physical attributes able to be Sure, good. obviously you need lots of things. You right. need to have water, you need to have money, you need, right. you know, all of that. But the physical, the actual physical substance right. of cities, what they are literally made out of, right. is for the most part just sand. It's concrete, right? right? I mean, if you look around you, concrete is absolutely everywhere. It's what cities everywhere in the world are made primarily out of. It's concrete, and concrete is mostly just sand that's been stuck together. Mm-hmm. I like the part in the book where you describe concrete, cement. There's great details in it describing what they're made of, uh, how different proportions can make a different strength or different uh, tension or extendability. And then it makes me think of, you described San Francisco, uh, which might be a place that you have resided, had uh, an earthquake, and then that earthquake broke everything except for one building that had concrete with rebar in it. Yeah. And I believe you described how rebar, yeah, was made in the attempt to twist it and such. Uh, is is concrete, by the way, I was thinking about this now, is concrete now as relevant as it was then? Has it lost some of its, like, charm from when it was created? Well, it's really interesting because we barely ever even think about concrete, right? It's just kind of there and people mm-hmm. barely even are aware of it. But... As like you mentioned, it was only it's a very recent invention, modern concrete. It really only came into use around the turn of the of the last century, around the 1900s. And a big part of that was because those concrete buildings were practically the only things that were still standing after the San Francisco earthquake. Everything else was made out of brick or timber, and those things just collapsed in the earthquake. So at the time, people were really excited about it. They were like, oh my God, this is the, 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 the material of the future. This is wonderful. It's fantastic. And it was very sort of fashionable all of a sudden to build out of concrete. Now, nobody likes concrete, right? It's, it's ugly. It's, you think of, you know, you think of like concrete prisons and concrete overpasses and oh, the concrete jungle. Alcatraz. Alcatraz, right? But it's, I mean, we're using more of it than ever before by far. Like I say, I mean, basically every building that's going up anywhere on the planet that's higher than a few stories, any, every shopping mall, every apartment block, every office tower is made primarily out of concrete. And that's because it's, it's a really good building material. It's really cheap. It's easy to work with. Um, and it, it's very durable, right? It lasts a long time. And it's completely displaced basically all the other building materials or it's, it's put them, really put them in the shade. So what's happening in today's world is all over the developing world, in China, in India, in Indonesia, Nigeria, you name it, people are pouring into cities. Those populations are growing really fast. People are leaving the rural countryside and moving into cities because that's where all the jobs are. Mm-hmm. And so we are building cities at an incredible rate. And basically what we're building those cities out of is concrete. So even though nobody loves concrete, we can't avoid using it. It's, it's absolutely indispensable. That's true. And it's super strong. And it made previous building materials look weak in comparison. Every time we have an upgrade, it's always like that. The last thing looks comical. Maybe the next thing, 
Do we have a current next thing? I don't know, after concrete. I mean, concrete is it right, right. now. I mean, people, lots of people are working on uh, other substances. or Of course, they're constantly evolving concrete, right? There's thousands of different ways you can make concrete to make it, you know, more resistant to cold or more resistant to heat or more, you know, for different applications, for taller buildings, for shorter buildings. And there are a lot of very sophisticated um, types of concrete coming on the market, like self-healing concrete that will, uh, when it cracks, it'll heal itself, stuff like that. So there's a lot of that. But as far as, you know, a, a whole different material that can really replace it, the way concrete replaced bricks and masonry and timber i don't see it right not really i found it funny the example in the book it shows us how we don't really have a sense during time that one time there was a five thousand dollar bond needed for the first concrete street to say hey, this is going to last right and that's from 1891 and it's still there from that time that's some statement because at that time they were thinking oh, okay all right buddy you have to put up some investment because this isn't going to work. Right. Uh, There's this new thing. Like, right. what, what is this crazy concrete stuff? Who How knows? can we believe in this? And then it turns out it, it functions well. The, the material about roads I found to be informative because it kind of connects, connects with the small world networks I had recently been talking about. Because without the interstate highways, uh, we were a bunch of disconnected regions in the country. And then through that huge project of concrete or asphalt, uh, we now have... Uh, they're still distant from one another, but they're connected transportationally, and it makes each area like a booming city that it couldn't have been before. That's a nice impact. Absolutely. And we're covered with roads in our wonderful nation. Just super covered. And a lot was built like 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. The Mr. Kaiser, I didn't even know about him, uh, but he was a mogul. His name is not well known except for Kaiser Permanente. But he was a right. big part of that. Yeah, with he was one of the richest men in America. He did a huge amount to, I mean, to literally build the country. Kaiser did, and he got his start uh, as selling sand and gravel to road builders. And then he got into the road and dam building business himself. And later on, he became he really made his huge money um, building battleships. Um, and yeah, I mean, most people today don't even remember don't remember him, but. You know, here in California, Kaiser Permanente is a huge, huge healthcare provider. And that was something that he created to serve his own employees. There's also the Kaiser Foundation, which is an enormous foundation that gives lots and lots of money huh. out. So, yeah, and all built on sand, that whole empire. Right. Started from him selling sand. Everything from sand and or gravel, which are elements of concrete, but you need more than that. One thing that comes to mind is you have a background in criminal justice and then so when you look at a scenario like sand do you look at it from the perspective of where was this used as like uh, you know like violence is attached to holding on to sand or if you don't uh, give us this much we'll commit crimes against you do you look at that element more so or where's the main Sure. Well, I mean, like I said, that's what got me into it in the first place right. was finding out that there were, you know, people were being murdered over sand. Mm -hmm. that there is, you know, that there is a black market in it. Right. And it's really, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I still, you know, I get Google alerts uh, pretty much every single day about crime, about the black market in sand in India. That's really where it's worse. Mm -hmm. I mean, hundreds of people have been murdered in India and they're constantly being like battles between sand gangs or the sand gangs 
killing or threatening or assaulting police officers, activists, journalists, like practically every day. It's, it's, at, it's at its worst in India, but it's a lot of other places there's violence as well. In Kenya, Gambia, Indonesia, China, lots of places the uh, uh, organized crime has moved into it. And with that comes violence. Mm-hmm. Not really in this country, as far as I can tell. There is, there is some black market here. There is some stealing of sand and illegal sand mining. But I haven't really heard of any violence connected with it. Huh. More like in developing countries where they need the sand to build their infrastructure up. Yeah, where there's the demand is really, really intense, and the you know the whole structure of rules and regulations and, and enforcement just isn't as strong as it is here and in the Western world. Right. China. China is super building everything possible. They make our downtown. One time I met somebody from China. He was here for a little bit, and we walked around downtown. He was from Hong Kong, and he was like. He found downtown Los Angeles to be very uh, sparse. Yeah. Which I was like, "There's look at all this new development. It's getting bigger." But then I looked at a picture of Hong Kong and I was like, oh, "Okay." Yeah. Okay. This yeah. is then. This is sparse. <laughs> they packed in everything into one small area. I like how you described the glass is connected. Is there's sand that's uh, like in a liquid form, but it's solid, but it doesn't stay solid. I found that to be informative. We use it for lenses and whatnot. The purity that you had mentioned in the book required for CPU silicon. That is amazing because it was like 99.99999% Right, pure. 11 nines after the decimal. 11 nines. Super pure. You need almost every element to be silicon and one in 80 yeah. in a billion. Every, every atom in there has to be silicon except like only one in, I think it's one in every 20 billion atoms mm-hmm. is something other than silicon. And that's okay, that one. That one is allowed... Um, so the beaches are losing sands. Uh, is that as much of an issue here? There was one that you mentioned in the West Coast, but in other areas it's a bigger issue. Uh, is rock breaking down a solution to that, or is it not? Uh, well, so beaches. So the issue of beaches disappearing is, yeah. is a big issue. I, in the book, I focused mostly on Florida, mm-hmm. which is probably where it's probably where it's at its worst, but. All up and down the Atlantic seaboard, beaches are eroding really badly, and all on, and along the West Coast as well. I mean, we have to do beach renourishment here in California as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you can get more sand by crushing up rock, but that's it's very expensive to do that. Right? If you just think about how much energy it takes, the size of a machine you need to smash boulders down into the size of sand grains, it's expensive. It's much more expensive than just scooping up naturally occurring stuff. We actually, here in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. we import sand all the way from Canada to refill our beaches. I didn't know that. Yeah. It almost makes no sense if you think about it, but I guess that's the... Well, it works out only because um, they have really, there's this mine in Canada, uh, it's on the West Coast, Mm -hmm. and they have really high quality sand that's right next to the water. So they basically dig it out of the ground and they can dump it straight onto a boat ship it by boat all the way down here and then offload it directly on shore so you don't have a lot of transportation cost but it's still it just shows you how crazy things have gotten that we are like bringing sand from you know a thousand miles up the coast right to keep our beaches looking nice that is something about our current world because of so many things being in shortages and other areas having extra amounts that we're having these huge transports this to this these people this these people are providing tech support for the people that across it's interesting it wouldn't have happened a long time ago it would have been shorter distances 
One thing in the book you mentioned, change can happen quickly now more than ever because uh, everything is at scale and transportation is quicker. What is What are a couple of the largest changes that can be made with regards to sand maintenance, uh, keeping it from disappearing? What, what can we do to minimize the damage mm -hmm. of our dependence on sand? Well, a couple of things. So there are some sort of technological measures mm -hmm. that can help. Like I said, people are working on ways to make uh, concrete that lasts longer or concrete that uses less sand or that uses other things besides sand, like shredded plastic or bamboo. There are a lot of researchers working on that. Those things can help. Huh. Um, we could be recycling more. You can recycle concrete to a certain extent, but only to a pretty limited extent. Oh. Okay? We could be doing more, we should be doing more, but it's, it's never going to be a complete solution. Mm. Um, to me, the only real long-term solution is, is really to reframe the question. Right? I mean, we all know we're running out of fresh water. Yes. We're running out of trees. We're taking too many fish out of the ocean. Right. Right. And now come to find out we're running out of sand, of all things. <laughs> These are not separate problems. Right. These are all aspects. These are all uh, symptoms of the same problem, which is just we consume too much. Overconsumption. Exactly. We human beings, especially in the, in the, in the developed world, in Western Europe and North America, we're just consuming way too many resources. The planet just can't sustain it. Right. Right. We're already, there's already more than 7 billion people in the world and we're on track to hit 9 billion in the next couple of decades. And the planet just cannot, there just aren't enough resources in the world for everybody to live the way that we live here in the United States if we keep consuming the way that we consume. So we have got to find a way to live our lives and to build our cities in ways that consume less. That's the only real solution. Right. That makes sense. Because other solutions would make it more efficient, but they wouldn't tackle the issue. We just keep grabbing on whatever's available. Right. I mean, you know, I think it's great, like, you know, all these other things that, that we've been talking about can help, right? right. Like a little more, if we, we could do some rec more recycling and probably reduce our sand usage by, I don't know, 5 10%. That helps. Right. But it doesn't solve the whole problem. We need solutions that are much more systemic. Right. Like, for example, one thing is let's do everything we can to get people out of their cars, have to lower car ownership. What does that have to do with sand? Well, think about it. If we could reduce car ownership in this country by, let's say, 10%, mm -hmm. right? All of a sudden, that means that 10% of new houses that are built no longer need garages and they don't need driveways, right? That right there saves you millions of tons of sand every year, right? Also, the highways, the new highways that we build don't have to be as big. We don't have to build as many of them. We don't have to have such large, we can shrink the size of parking garages, you know, uh, parking structures, like when you go to the hospital or the shopping mall. Those parking structures don't have to be as big if right. more people are getting there on public transit or bicycle or shared rides like Uber or Lyft, those kind of things. So that's an example of how by reducing car ownership, first of all, you save a lot on carbon emissions and all the other you know, traffic, all the other problems that are associated with cars, but you also save a lot on sand. All right, so that's an example of how by reducing consumption in one area, you can also reduce it in another area at the same time. Those are the kind of solutions that we need to be looking at. Mm -hmm. That one actually links with uh, something mentioned with uh, Professor Strogatz from recent episode. He talked about the minimal fleet required to be on the road, like 
Uh, they have they're doing research on the minimal number of cars you need to get everybody to where they want to go, uh, which with the automation he wasn't talking about automation, but would be the ideal is that there's just cars there, and they have algorithms that map out exactly what's the best way to get these two or three people here, and maybe you could reduce the number of cars on the road by th 20, 30, 40 percent, and still get everybody there, which connects to this. Clearly, there's a like multiple elements are all pointing to cars as like a. Cars are a big problem. We've made a huge uh, issue there that wasn't there if everybody was biking. Obviously, we can't bike completely, but... Right. We can't get rid of cars. I mean, cars are super useful, and a lot of people absolutely need them. Right. But we don't all need to have a car, that's right. for sure. And there's and some issue with everybody being one, one person in one car, and there's like 500 of them. Exactly. It looks a little funny. Exactly. Right. This is true. The solutions and the, uh, the issues and the solutions are connected across fields. I like to point that out sometimes because it's not just one category is the issue and the other category has all the solutions. It's never that way. Um, one thing I like to always check on is uh, going further. This is a specific uh, content on sand. What is something you're looking to or another goal or a goal you have towards the end of 2019? For me personally? Yes, I always like to check that. Uh, well, I'd, I'd like to do another book. This sand book was my first one. Oh, wonderful. And I'd really like to to do another one. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm looking for the next big idea. So if any of your listeners have any great <laughs> ideas, I'm very interested in this whole question of natural resources and how we're using things and ways that we can be using them more uh, efficiently and effectively. So I've done a lot of reporting on oil and gas and... Um, uh, you know, but I'm always looking for for good ideas in that front. Mm -hmm. I must point out, I know I pointed out earlier, but it's very nice. Uh, your book it is specific to an item, and it stays in your mind. I don't know, some books, they are not specific to an item, and then it's great, but you don't recall anything a year later because the, there's like three things were tackled. And so this one, one specific, and the concept, and nobody's brought it up. It's the funniest thing. I thought about it when I was reading it. Well, like, I don't see this mentioned. There's sand everywhere. There's all this stuff. Like, this is like half of what I'm looking at every day. Yeah. And I don't see anything almost about it. And then suddenly there's a book about it. So that was a nice deal that you would never find. Um, and then also connected to uh, sustainability. Now, you don't live there currently, but you used to live in the Northern California area. I feel like that area has a better sense of sustainability and um, reusing plastic or there's like a sense of community. Sure, there. more environmental consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, which is a nice feature. Uh, and I think other societies will catch up at least in that regard to like the San Francisco area. I just get that sense. I hope so. Yeah. But you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot of places in Europe that are much further ahead than oh, anything true. in this country. Right. You know, that have done so much more to make bicycling really easy and safe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Holland, they have, they have dedicated uh, highways just for bicycles so that you can get from place to place really quickly on a bike without having to interact with cars at all, which is a great idea. Because that's one of the main things that keeps people off of bicycles is they're scared. You know? Right, right. It's uh, not really built for bicycles on the road. Especially not this town, no. man, I'll tell you. That's a good point. Yes, I know somebody in Scotland who, uh, yeah, they recycle each thing separately, and it's mm -hmm. it's way more sense of it. And they mm -hmm. like look over here confusedly, like, what are you guys doing over there? They don't get it. 
That's a wonderful point. Uh, and the last thing I would check is what is the message you would have for all people? If you had a megaphone, what is one message you would tell all people that represents something that is uh, important to you? Wow. Yeah, that one always is a variety one. That's but I like a to big throw one. that in there. Yes. That's a big one. And it could be connected to the book, could be in general uh, theme, but more so a general theme. I like to. Well, I think I'd go back to, you know, what we were talking about as far as the solution for sand, which is just we have to learn to live smaller, right? We've, you know, we have grown up uh, in a society that where there's just incredible abundance. We live, talking about here in North America, yeah. we live richer, better, we consume more than any other generation in history by far, by miles. And that can't continue. And it's okay if it doesn't continue. It's actually fine if we scale back. Like, we can live in slightly smaller houses. We can share things like cars and washing machines. We don't need to all live in giant houses with our own cars, with our own appliances, with our own giant TVs, eating you know meat three meals a day. It's totally fine. You will realize if you start to just, you know, minimize some of those things in your own life, you don't, you really don't miss them, right? We're, we're sort of trained to consume, to consume, to consume, because that's how capitalism works. Right. And when you try to step back from that and really just sort of scale back your, your consumption, your intake, you learn pretty quickly, it's fine. Your life is still just as good and just as happy as it was before and better in a lot of ways. And you, you are creating a way of life that is much more sustainable, where you're, you're, you're helping to create a way of life that might make living on this planet possible for my kids and your kids <laughs> and all of our kids to come. Right. That last part. Classic. That is wonderful, and I'm with that message. I want to thank you for having been on this episode and letting us know about your book and your message as well. All right. Thanks, Armin. It was a pleasure being here. Wonderful. And we are out. <laughs>